So we'll be reading from Acts 14, the whole of the chapter. Acts 14, beginning at verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Laconian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their own way, but he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Poseidon, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. Upon arriving there they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, welcome. Good morning. Hello. My name's Mark. It's nice to be with you this morning. Um, there was a period this week when I didn't think I was going to make it here because uh, I've been rather sick all week. Uh, and so uh, your, your friends at the nine o'clock service very graciously prayed for me 
before that service so that uh, and I managed to stay standing I would love it if you could pray as well for this uh, next half hour or so that uh, the Lord would give me strength what great news it is though that in our human weakness God gets the glory so uh, why don't we pray and uh, ask that uh, we can learn and uh, hear from God as we look at Acts 14 together and then we'll have a think about this chapter let's pray Our gracious God, thank you uh, that you are immensely powerful, uh, that you have abundant strength for all that we need to do. Lord, would you please provide me with strength now to be able to speak from your word truthful and helpful things. Uh, Lord, please give strength to the brothers and sisters here that they might listen and learn and grow in their love for the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. Uh, There are some things in life uh, that are tough and worth it. Not everything that's tough is worth it, let's be clear, but there are some things that are tough and worth it. So, for example, the the sleepless nights that you spend parenting a newborn child, that's tough and clearly worth it. Studying for your upcoming exams, tough, hopefully worth it. Being a Manly Sea Eagles fan, tough, not worth it. I mean, do you see the difference, right? Um, there is a, a famous story, and I've told this story before, so forgive me if, if you've heard the details, of uh, the Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton, who put a LUD in a, an ad in a London newspaper in the early 20th century, and this is what the ad said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success. This was a task that was going to be tough. The question was, was it going to be worth it? What would people think? Would they be keen to take part in a task as tough as that? Well, as it happened, uh, Ernest Shackleton received about 5,000 men come forward after seeing that ad in the newspaper and wanting to take their chances on the Antarctic exploration. I actually uh, chatted with somebody after the nine o'clock service whose grandfather was a part of that uh, exploration. They clearly... Uh, assessed that the hardship, the difficulty, the sacrifice that they would have to go through would be worth it for the sake of that great mission. My contention is that sometimes being a Christian and following Jesus in this life feels a bit like that Antarctic adventure. It feels tough. Uh, Jesus himself said that the life of someone who follows him would be hard. That if you want to be his disciple, you're signing up for a life of self-denial. That actually every single day you will be someone who has to take up your cross and follow after Jesus, marching towards your death. That's the life that Jesus portrayed for his followers, a life which is clearly going to be full of hardship. The Bible says that if you're a Christian then you ought to know you've got three enemies in this life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those three enemies are going to try and make it as hard for you and as painful for you as possible to continue to follow Jesus. And so we can admit here that sometimes it is painful to be a Christian. It hurts sometimes. And if you don't know that yet, it's probably because you haven't been a Christian very long. Now, if you're with us this morning and you are someone who is not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus, you might be confused about why a Christian person would be talking so negatively about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Maybe I'm doing a bad sales pitch. I would suggest if that's you here this morning, you could listen in to the things we're going to discuss today and ask yourself the question, why would so many people in this place choose to follow Jesus 
if it's going to be as hard as all that stuff that Mark's just said, that'd be a good question for you to ponder. The question for us who do follow Jesus, the question we have to ponder is whether following Jesus is going to be one of those things that's tough but worth it or tough and not worth it. Do you know, in, uh, in Australia's short history, I don't think there's ever been a time when being a Christian has been more stigmatised than right now. Uh, I know that there are some people in this church who feel that very acutely. Uh, and so you may already be asking this question of yourself, is it worth following Jesus? Uh, if you're not yet follow- asking that question, well, give it a few years and I'm pretty sure you will be. Uh, the census data in Australia, every time it comes out, it reveals that every single year there are scores of people, thousands, millions of people, who are choosing to no longer identify themselves as Christians. Now, were they ever Christians in the first place? I think it's doubtful. But nevertheless, millions of people around the country are concluding that it's no longer worth being associated with Jesus. Too much bother. Are they right? Is it worth sticking with Jesus, following Jesus when it's going to be hard, when it's going to hurt? This chapter that we're looking at this morning, Acts chapter 14, is going to raise that question and then I think it's going to try and answer it for us. That's what we're going to see in Acts 14. Uh, the, the first thing that I, I want us to look at is, is a kind of a hard reality to accept, but it's there all the way through the chapter and so we have to come to terms with it. It's the reality that getting to heaven will hurt. That's what Acts 14 is going to teach us first of all. Getting to heaven will hurt. Now, uh, as we begin, let me just remind you about where we are in the book of Acts at this point. Uh, We are almost exactly halfway through the book, and we're halfway through the first ever missionary journey in all of church history, as Paul and Barnabas and some others were sent off from the city of Antioch in Syria, that's over on the east side there, sent down into Cyprus, preaching the good news of the gospel, and then up into Turkey, and uh, we've seen them arrive at Antioch. Uh, Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, up at the top there. That was back in chapter 13, where they preached the gospel. And up to this point, the Jewish people who heard said, no thanks. That's essentially what's happened on this first missionary journey. They said, we're not interested, and they kicked Paul and Barnabas out of town. If you were here last week, you might remember that's what we looked at. Chapter 14 today is the second half of that missionary journey as it all kind of wraps up. And what we see all the way throughout this chapter is that that kind of opposition to the gospel, that kind of disinterest just escalates and escalates and escalates. At the start of the chapter, they're in Iconium, and you can tell they've already had great success. Verse 1, they've won a great number of people as disciples, converts. But verse 2 says this, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Similar to what we saw last week, the message of Jesus is met with hostility. Now, it's worth just sort of trying to put yourself into Paul's shoes as you read about this sort of thing. Because Paul, for all of his life, had been a very respectable man. Right? He was a Pharisee, one of the great religious teachers in Israel. He was at the centre of Israel's community and religious life. And so Paul would be the kind of guy who's used to having doors held open for him, being treated with deference and respect wherever he went, his opinions sought, his judgments appreciated. You know, man could get used to that kind of prestige. But here, Paul's lot in life seems to have turned. 
Now Paul seems to be reviled wherever he goes. It's worth thinking about what could make somebody willing to endure that kind of a downward trajectory in life. Well, how does Paul respond here to this opposition in Iconium? Read verse 3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord. Now, that's a kind of peculiar thing to say, isn't it? Just been told there's lots of opposition, verse 3, so they choose to stay there. (laughs) You would expect it to say, well, in spite of that, they gritted their teeth and bunked down and stayed put for a little bit longer. But it, it says the reason they stayed is because of the opposition. Paul's not afraid, actually, of ruffling a few feathers, having a bit of confrontation, and so he decides to to keep going. Now, eventually, the hostility in that town does ramp up, verses 5, 6, 7. There's a plot to try and kill Paul, and so they do jump town. They're born again, not born yesterday, so they decide it's time to leave. And they head to Lystra, further east. Uh, And surprise, surprise, what do they find? There's more opposition waiting for them there too. Now, we're going to sort of dissect and have a look in a bit more detail about what exactly happens in Lystra uh, in a little bit, uh, a few minutes' time. For now, just notice the opposition at the end of the whole interaction in Lystra. Verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Now, a small detail there, and again, if you don't know the geography, maybe you just sort of read over it. Luke wants to make the point that the people who've come to attack Paul have gone to great lengths to do so. They've travelled from Antioch to Iconium and Lystra. That is about 150 kilometres on the map. By foot, they would have walked just to be able to have this attempted uh, killing of Paul. Now, Luke doesn't give us much details about what that looked like, how that worked, and so it is easy to just sort of read right past it, but don't let it be lost on you just how brutal of a thing it was to try to stone somebody to death. There's obviously the the physical torment of it all, the immense pain, but on top of that there is, if they don't succeed, the psychological burden of that, of knowing now that so many people were willing to play a part in your death. I imagine that would have weighed quite heavily on Paul. Now, back in in chapter 9, Rod reminded us of this last week. After Paul had become a Christian, uh, Jesus speaks to a guy called Ananias back in chapter 9, and he explains what's going to happen to Paul. Paul's going to be his messenger to the Gentiles, to the kings and rulers in the world. But also, Jesus says this, chapter 9, verse 16, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus predicted this. And we're starting to see those words come true as Paul is stoned almost to death. Now, by some miracle, Paul survives. But instead of taking you know, some well-deserved R&R, uh, the very next day, he sets off for Derby and he continues to preach the gospel there before, again, heading back west, through all of the towns where he'd just come from. And that's a very peculiar kind of travel itinerary, isn't it? Because if you were just beaten to within an inch of your life, if if it had been made abundantly clear that the people in these towns are not interested in what you've got to offer and you were the Apostle Paul, well, at that point, you'd head east. 
You'd keep going east, back to the home base in Antioch, to your sending church. You might drop off by a Tarsus, where Paul was from. That was kind of on the way. Get a home-cooked meal as you're heading back there. But that's not what Paul does. He heads right back into the firing line. And we're told why. It's because he wants to strengthen the faith of those baby Christians in all of the towns he's just come from. Uh, Luke tells us essentially what Paul's message was as he goes back to all those places, strengthening the churches. Look at verse 22. Paul's message boils down to this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. You can kind of imagine Paul with the, the lacerations and the bumps and the bruises on his face as he says these words. He knows these words are true. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the word hardship there, it's a word that kind of gets translated as trouble or suffering or persecution in different places in the Bible. It's not so much describing kind of the run-of-the-mill difficulties that you experience in life, like when you have a, a difficult boss or when you get sick and have some health concerns. It's not talking about those things. It's talking about the opposition that you experience because you follow Jesus. That's what Paul is saying there. Paul says experiencing much of that opposition is what you should expect. It's, in fact, a prerequisite for entering into the kingdom of God. Now, what's most surprising about this message as Paul comes back through these churches trying to strengthen and encourage them is he says, we must suffer. Remember, Jesus said to Paul or said about Paul, he must suffer. But now as Paul goes through, back through these churches, he says, no, it's we, it's not me. <laughs> this is par for the course for anybody who follows Jesus. Now, I take it that Paul is, just to be clear, he's not saying, oh, this is going to be particularly difficult for you in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. It's not that Paul's been given some special revelation that it's these churches that are going to suffer for following Jesus. He doesn't tell them, oh, it's because you're in Antioch that you're going to go through many hardships. It's because they're in Christ that they're going to go through many hardships. That is what life as a follower of Jesus looks like. Jesus himself said that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. John 15. Acts chapter 14, the first thing that it wants to do for us is confront us with the inescapable reality that getting to heaven will hurt. Now, before we answer the question then of whether that's worth it, I just want to live with that truth for a minute. And think about what, what difference does that make to our lives if we accept that fact that getting to heaven will hurt. I hope that even now, as we've been thinking about this for 10 minutes, that it's starting to have the same effect on you as Paul was hoping for it to have on the churches in Iconium and Lystra and Derby. I hope your faith is being strengthened by this reality, that your resolve to remain true to the faith, that that's increasing by knowing this fact. That's certainly Paul's intention. Uh, we've you know, all had that experience, at least I have, I trust you have as well, of driving down a road full speed and getting that very rude shock of hitting a speed bump at full speed that you just somehow had managed to miss. You ever had that kind of thing? It is a rude, your heart skips a beat. It would have been much better had you seen it, had you known, had you anticipated, had you been able to prepare for that interference that was coming your way. You'd be prepared to deal with it. I say, I think in, in the same way, if you learn to expect hardships for following Jesus, 
you're going to be better prepared when they come. If, if you are someone who thinks that the life of following Jesus is supposed to be nothing but blue skies and sunshine, well, then anytime some hardship comes to you, you're going to interpret it wrong. You're going to assume it's because, well, I mustn't have enough faith. That's why this thing is happening to me. Or because God is punishing me. He's angry with me for some reason because I've done something. Or because, well, everything's just out of control. You mustn't conclude those things, though. Instead, when hardship comes, you should interpret them as evidence that you are on the path that leads to heaven. Getting to heaven will hurt. We know that. And I want to say as well, there is something incredibly freeing about just making peace with that fact. Because it means that instead of trying to live a life where you avoid any kind of discomfort, any kind of cost in following Jesus, which, let's be clear, many Christians try and live that kind of a life. Instead of doing that, it means you can be the kind of person who is courageous who takes risks for the gospel, who speaks openly about Jesus, come what may, who's okay with living counterculturally to their friends and family, even if they're going to be mocked for it, who's willing to be inconvenienced for the cause of the gospel because you know that there's going to be hardships coming your way no matter what. <laughs> That's a wonderfully freeing kind of a truth to know. Acts chapter 14, firstly, confirms for us that getting to heaven will hurt. Being a Christian will be tough at times. The other thing that Acts chapter 14 is going to show us is that it is incredibly worth it because of God's grace. Chapter 14 teaches us that God's grace makes hardship worth it. God's grace makes hardship worth it. Uh, in, in this chapter, there are two little uh, snapshots you get of the preaching that Paul and Barnabas do. And in both these snapshots of their sermons, the theme is the same. It's the theme of God's grace. So look again at verse 3. You get this little descriptor where Paul and Barnabas spend time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace. It's the summary that Luke gives to the sermons that Paul and Barnabas were preaching. It's the message of God's grace. And isn't that a beautiful little descriptor of what we as Christians have to offer the world? Now, if you are a Christian here today, I trust that you already know that there is a great distinction between the Christian message and the message of any other worldview or faith or religion on the face of the planet. Because at the heart of the Christian faith is the belief that God gives God gives. He doesn't demand from you. He gives to you. And any other worldview or faith or religion on the planet tells you the opposite. It tells you that you must achieve. You must earn your acceptance. Your merit, uh, you must merit your place in heaven. That God has certain standards of you and you have to hit them. Christians, however, know that in Jesus Christ... God gives. Now, that's, that's so fundamental, so ground level to our faith that it can be quite easy to kind of take that for granted. But when you come back and, and remember that reality again, it is a wonderfully refreshing thing, isn't it? You know, if you, if you walked out of here today and on your way home, uh, you were met in the car park or at the train station or something by a man in a 
you know, sharp suit and he wanders up to you and he says, hello, friend. Uh, now, we've never met. Uh, I'm a businessman around here. Here are my credentials. Uh, I, I've got a suitcase here and I'd like to give it to you. It's full of money, $10,000. Would you like it? I mean, that would be a peculiar thing to happen. Uh, you'd probably be right to be sceptical. I think I would. Maybe you would imagine that it's some sort of scam that's going on. You're thinking, how's this going to result in me ending up giving him money? That's got to be the game here. So maybe you go and you, you chat to the nearby policeman at the train station. You say, what's this guy on about? And they say, oh, no, he's totally legit. We know about him. He's just hes a very benevolent local businessman, not nicest guy you'll ever meet. Yeah, he's been very generous to lots of people. Well, <laughs> maybe you go back to that guy and you'd say, what? Why do you want to give me this money? And he says, oh, I'm just feeling generous. You say, yeah, but why me? And he says, I don't know. I just saw you there and I wanted to give it to you. But what, what have I done? And he says, oh, nothing. You haven't done anything. I'm just wanting to be generous towards you. Now, how many more questions are you going to ask before you take the money? I mean, that would be a, a remarkable thing to happen, wouldn't it? You'd be telling everybody about that interaction for the rest of your life. You would try and get your friends and family to come back and meet this guy and see if he makes the same offer to them. Do you know there is something even more remarkable at the heart of the Christian faith? The Christian faith believes that in Jesus Christ, God gives to you. He gives you salvation. He gives you his love. He gives you heaven. He gives you eternity. And you've done nothing to earn it. Why does he give it to you? It's because he's generous. He's a gracious God. Why you, though? Well, you just have to ask him when you get there, I guess. God is a gracious giver. That's the message that Paul has come to believe. That's the message that Paul is now preaching to the ends of the earth. It's the message that brings salvation to many people in Iconium, verse 1, to many people in Derby and Lystra and Antioch, verse 21. That's the first snapshot of Paul's preaching. The second snapshot is that thing that happens in Lystra. And it's in the context of that miraculous healing that we read about. Verses 8 to 10, where Paul heals this lame man simply by telling him to get up and walk. And it's very reminiscent of, word for word almost, the same as the healing that Peter performed back in chapter 3. Luke's making a point. It doesn't matter which apostle, you put the gospel on their lips and it's got the same power. It's the gospel that has the power. That's what Luke is getting out there. But after this miracle takes place in Lystra, uh, the crowd kind of lose their mind. Uh, let's read again from verse 11. Uh, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to sacrifice to them. Now that's that seems like a, I've never experienced that, preaching the gospel, I can say. It seems like a strange kind of response for people to suddenly think you're a god. There is a bit of background knowledge that I think makes, helps to make sense of this. Uh, there is a, an, a legend uh, that one of the historians of this area, a bloke by the name of Ovid, whose works you can still find in libraries, he wrote about a story, a, a myth, basically, where a few centuries earlier, the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, came down to this area to visit disguised as ordinary men. And they went around to a thousand houses knocking on the door looking for hospitality, but nobody welcomed them in until eventually this old couple, there's a painting that's going to come up here of a depiction of this event, uh, this old couple 
uh, welcomed them in and gave them a meal. And as a reward, Zeus and Hermes turned this humble little hovel that the old couple were living in into a giant temple. And he elevated them to priests and priestess within this, this temple. And then both gods went around to the other thousand houses that had refused them hospitality and burnt them to the ground. That's the background kind of belief behind uh, this event here. And so on one level, it's perfectly understandable that Paul and Barnabas uh, receive a welcome fit for a god here uh, because the crowd in Lystra don't want to be destroyed, right? They're, they're being driven by fear at this point because they think they've got to appease the gods or else the gods will be angry. They think the gods are people who take from them and so they get their wreaths ready and they get their worship on and they start making sacrifices. Now, Paul and Barnabas are horrified by that blasphemy. So they tear their clothes and then they begin to preach. That's the context for this next sermon from verse 15. Verse 15. Friends, why are you doing this, says Paul? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, one of the, um, the sort of features of this sermon, it's the first time in the whole book of Acts, uh, is that the, the preaching is no longer about how Jesus is the fulfilment of Old Testament promises. That's what we've seen time and time again throughout the book of Acts. But here, Paul's preaching to pagans. They don't have the Old Testament. There's no synagogue in town. They don't know any of that sort of background. And so Paul just starts with the truth about God as the creator. That's his starting point. And you'd have to say... He's pretty confrontational from the get-go, isn't he? We are bringing you good news, good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. I mean, that sounds harsh, doesn't it? Worthless things? What a judgment to make. I mean, here, are, here is this town. They've got their own truth. They're happy with their own cultural identity. You know, they're finding their own way up the religious mountain. And here's Paul. He rocks into town and he says that they should give up hundreds of years of their cultural and religious identity to worship a God of whom they had never heard until that day. Seems a bit rich. He's even got the gall to call it good news. I don't know if you remember the story of uh, an American missionary, a 26-year-old guy called uh, Josh Chow, uh, John Chow, excuse me, he came to fame back in 2018 when he tried to make contact with a remote people group uh, off an island uh, just off the coast of India called the Sentinelese people. They were one of the last uncontacted tribes on the whole planet. They were notoriously hostile towards outsiders and never received people uh, trying to make contact with them. But John felt compelled to go. And so he arrived one day in November by kayak bearing some gifts and saying to them, my name is John, I love you, and Jesus loves you. Within minutes, he was killed on the beach. And uh, when the news outlets began to report this story, uh, there was worldwide outrage about this. Do you remember? There were people sort of casting him as imperialistic and a, a colonizer. The consensus opinion seemed to be, how dare he? How dare he bring his Western religion and go and interrupt these perfectly happy people with their own worldview? What right did he have? Now, I don't know what you made of that uh, little incident. And I think whilst it's fair to question John's methodology and how we went about this, as a Christian, 
I hope that you can say that John was absolutely right in wanting these Sentinelese people to turn from their empty way of life and to know and serve the true and living God. I hope you can say that. John, just like Paul, is motivated by truth and love. He knew that he had something better to offer these people. And so as Paul preaches to this scared, confused mob of pagans who think that they need to placate the gods or else they're going to be destroyed, Paul wants them to know that he's got something far better to offer them. The message of Paul's sermon is essentially that God is generous and patient and kind. That's what he wants them to know. Read again verse 15. Uh, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. God is the creator of everything. He owns it all and it all owes its allegiance back to him. He's in charge. God created. And then verse 16, Paul says, God waited. Read again verse 16. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. What's the implication? In the past, God let people go their own way, but now something's changed. Now that Jesus Christ has come, now we're at the, the fulfilment of the ages, the climax of history. God wants all people everywhere to know, verse 17, that he is kind. Read again verse 17. He's not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. What is God's attitude towards his enemies? What does God want for people who don't yet know him? Kindness and joy. That's his stance towards people even before they become his people. Now, yes, God is angry with sin. Yes, God is going to judge idolatry. But even to sinners who ignore him, God is gracious. God fills their hearts with joy. That's who God is. The joy that they have when they fall in love, God's given them that. The joy they have when they see a beautiful sunrise, God's given them that. The joy when their children are born or when they taste a beautiful meal or when their team wins, God has given those people that joy. It is his gift to them. And so can you see the great tragedy is when God's creatures do not recognise God as the giver of those gifts, but just take them for granted. What Paul's trying to do here is to get them to turn in repentance and to give thanks to the living God for the grace he's shown them, his generosity towards them. Because unless they know the giver of these gifts, they're actually missing out on something, aren't they? You can imagine maybe receiving a wonderfully beautiful and expensive and thoughtful uh, present from a secret admirer or, you know, from a secret Santa or something like that. The, the more spectacular this present is, the more there's something missing if you don't know who gave it to you because you miss out on being able to actually give thanks to that person and on them being able to see and experience the joy that you have in receiving it. The gift is somehow incomplete if you don't know the giver. How much more true is that of the gift of life itself? Paul's trying to get the Lystrans to know how generous God is. He wants them to know that this is a God who does not take, he gives. This God is nothing like Zeus and Hermes. 
He is a God of grace. Now, Paul doesn't get a chance to go any further in his sermon. He doesn't actually get to point to the the ultimate gift of grace that God has given to all people, his son, the Lord Jesus, who died to pay for our sins. Instead, the Lystrans kind of cut him off. Uh, They reject this invitation. They are just locked into this fearful worldview that they have. Looks like a failure, but do you know what? On that day, as Paul and Barnabas were there in Lystra witnessing to the gospel, there was someone who was listening. There was someone who saw the endurance that Paul and Barnabas had in the face of opposition. And later in the New Testament, you meet this man. He was a young fellow by the name of Timothy, came from Lystra, heard the gospel the day that Paul was there. And he goes on to be Paul's chief companion and co-worker, his dear son in the faith. It goes to show, doesn't it, that on the surface, when it looks like things might be a failure, that the message of God's grace is actually doing all sorts of work. But you see, Paul here, he's willing to just keep going, to keep speaking, to keep marching on through hardship, through apparent failure, because he knows that God is a God of grace. He's experienced the grace of God through the Lord Jesus. And to Paul, that far outweighs any struggle he might face in life. There's a story that's told of a Christian martyr who was walking to their death, to being tied to the stake. And they said, if this is the world that God gives to his enemies, imagine what he would give to his friends. If you know that God is a God of grace, you can walk through any hardship. When uh, Paul and Barnabas eventually do return to Antioch, they complete the journey and they give their little sort of missionary update report to their sending church. They make it very clear that God's grace has made all the hardship they've gone through completely worth it. Read again what they say at the end of the chapter, verses 26 and 27. From Italia, they say, sailed back to Antioch where they'd been committed to the grace of God for the work they'd now completed. On arriving, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he'd opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. What is it that they say when they get home? Well, notice that they completely avoid mentioning anything about the hardships. They simply rejoice that God's grace, the message of God's grace is at work, that a door has been opened for the Gentiles to believe the gospel, that people have been saved, sins forgiven, new life for Jesus created in these churches all over the country. Yes, there were hardships along the way, but it was worth it. Friends, when you know the grace of God shown to you supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can know that any hardship you go through for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus is worth it. Sacrifice for the gospel is worth it. The time and trouble and prayers that you pour in to see people become Christians is worth it. Suffering some of those awkward conversations with people as you invite them to Christianity Explored is worth it. Obeying Jesus, even when you're ridiculed for doing it, is worth it. Giving up your free time to serve in a ministry team that helps establish and strengthen people in their faith for Jesus is worth it. Giving away your money to extend the reach of the gospel is worth it. Any hardship that you experience in this life, in the path of obedience to Jesus, 
is worth it because of God's grace. Following Jesus can certainly be tough. We all know that. Getting to heaven will hurt. But in the end, we will all look back on this life and on our efforts and conclude the same thing that Paul and Barnabas did as they returned home, that it was worth it because in Jesus Christ, God gives. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have not treated us as our sins deserve. You have been far kinder, far more patient, far more generous with us than any of us deserve. We thank you that you are a God who wants to be kind and wants to share your joy. You are a God who overflows with grace. Almighty God, we confess that sometimes we question whether following Jesus through this life, as hard as it is sometimes, whether it's worth it. So God, please fill us with your grace again. Remind us of how abundantly kind you've been to us through your son. Remind us that at the end of all of this, it will be worth it so that we can endure and we can see you on that final day. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.